Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, December 3rd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the celebrations in the West African state of Cameroon after its team defeated Brazil uh, during the World Cup in Doha, Qatar. Reports indicate that uh, the Israeli Defense Forces have launched airstrikes against the Palestinian people in Gaza. We'll have details on that as well. A Russian governmental spokesman uh, has criticized comments made by an official of the United States Department, State Department. And uh, the Tanzania Supreme Court uh, recently sentenced 11 people to death for the murder of a conservationist. In the second hour, we listened to an interview with a leading African National Congress of South Africa official on the current situation inside the ruling party. Finally, we review a briefing by the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, in the North African state of Egypt with the music of uh, Um Kaltoum. Let's listen in.
Yeah. 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast, and uh, that was the music of Um Kaltum uh, from uh, the North African state of Egypt, uh, the legendary Um Kaltum, and that was a composition uh, performed live entitled Faka Rooney uh, from uh, 1966, and uh, today is Saturday, uh, December 3rd, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and we'd like to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now, we'd like to move into the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program, and these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Massive celebrations rocked uh, several streets of major towns in Cameroon after the indomitable Lions uh, thrashed uh, Brazil 1-0 in the last uh, Group G match in Doha, Qatar, uh, just yesterday. Cameroon became the first African team to win against Brazil in the World Cup uh, competition, though they will not progress to the round of 16 after ending in third place in their group matches behind Brazil and Switzerland. To fans, this was a rare opportunity to beat the Samba boys uh, after skipper Vincent Abubakar, only goal of the game in stoppage time. Uh, They honored us and made us very happy despite the fact that we did not qualify for the last 16. We are really happy to have beaten Brazil. Very happy. Congratulations to the Lions, the staff, especially Vincent Abubakar, we knew uh, we could do it. Uh, the win has arrived, and thanks to the Lions, a fan said. It's a great victory. We thank the collective. The players proved, despite the absence of goalkeeper Andre O'Hana, uh, they gave their all. Uh, we showed that Cameroon is a country of glory. Long live Cameroon. We congratulate the players for their fight. We congratulate uh, President Samuel Ito's head of the Cameroon Football Federation. We congratulate them because they fought to take the victory. We are the only African countries to have beat Brazil, another fan said. Abu Bakr was later shown a red card after he removed his shirt to celebrate despite having a previous yellow card. Brazil's progress as a group winners, and Switzerland took the second qualification spot following a 3-2 win 
over Serbia. And uh, in developments uh, in Palestine, uh, the Israeli army, army is striking targets in the Gaza Strip. Um, that's according to the Army Press Service. In response to the rocket fire towards Israeli territory on Saturday night, the Israeli Defense Forces uh, fighter jets uh, struck a target. Uh, they're saying that uh, details are to follow on Saturday evening. The Army press office reported that one rocket was fired from the Gaza Strip into the Israeli territory. The Army noted that no interceptor rockets were fired. According to it, the Israeli Home Front Command continued to operate as usual. Air raid alert sirens sounded uh, during the night. And uh, this took place in southern Israel near the border with the Gaza Strip. Warning residents of possible rocket attacks, the Army Press Service reported. The Israeli Air Force struck targets in the Gaza Strip, uh, destroying a weapons workshop uh, of the Palestinian radical Hamas movement and a tunnel used uh, by radicals in the, in the south of the enclave, the Army Spokesman Office reported. In response to the rocket fire towards Israeli territory on Saturday night, the IDF uh, forces fighter jets targeted overnight a weapons manufacturing site belonging to the Hamas organization, the statement said. In addition, the IDF struck a Hamas tunnel in southern Gaza Strip, the press service added. According to the Jerusalem Post, an air raid alert was declared in the vicinity of Nahal Oz, located in the immediate vicinity of the Palestinian enclave. A rocket fired by radicals landed in open terrain near uh, the village. This is the first time in a month that a rocket was fired at Israel from the Gaza Strip. The last time an air raid alert was announced in areas adjacent to the Palestinian enclave was on November 3rd. At the time, uh, the resistance forces launched one rocket at Israeli territory, and the target was intercepted by the Israeli air defense system. The military also reported at the time that it had detected three unsuccessful rocket attempts from the Palestinian enclave. The army reported that all the rockets landed on Palestinian territory. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And other news, Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Newland's words that Russia has not resorted to the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine because of Western warning are nothing but an attempt to shift blame. That's according to Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova. She said this on her Telegram channel earlier today, noting that Moscow repeatedly stated that nuclear war was unacceptable. The diplomat drew attention to Newland's words in the Ukrainskaya Pravda newspaper that Russian President Vladimir Putin decided not to resort to the use of nuclear weapons allegedly because of tough warnings from other states, as well as the unacceptability of strikes on energy infrastructure. Victoria Newland has once again defeated herself, first through her own controlled media and think tanks, she inflated the topic of the nuclear threat from Russia, and now she is trying to put the blame where it belongs. Allegedly, nuclear Armageddon did not happen because of tough warnings, and not because no one on this side of the border was planning it. Zakharova said, 
In this regard, the Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman recalled the ministry statement uh, published on November the 2nd on the prevention of nuclear war. As for the unacceptability of strikes on the energy system, it is not up to Newland to teach the world. Take a look at how many electrical grids the U.S. destroyed, or even better, how many electrical grids the United States and NATO destroyed together, Zakharova added. And uh, in conclusion of, of this segment, that we want to talk about a trial uh, that just concluded uh, in uh, the East African state of Tanzania. A high court in Tanzania yesterday sentenced 11 people to death for the murder of a conservationist in the East African country. This murder took place uh, more than five years ago. Anti-poaching activist Wayne Lauder, a South African national, was shot dead in August of 2017 while riding in a taxi in Tanzania's commercial capital of Dar es Salaam. Those sentenced to death include nine Tanzanians and two citizens of neighboring Burundi. Tanzania hasn't carried out an execution in decades. Lada was the director and co-founder of the Palms Foundation, a non-governmental organization which said he had helped to train thousands of game scouts throughout Tanzania and developed an intelligence-based approach to anti-poaching that has success in countering wildlife track trafficking. Poachers in Tanzania target various wildlife, including elephants that are often killed uh, for their tusks. And with that, though, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has since then published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, Let's go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, December 3rd, uh, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that is the classic uh, sound of Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's uh, from uh, British Columbia, uh, Canada. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, I am your host, Abayomi uh, Azikwe. And uh, right now we're going to go to a extensive uh, interview uh, with uh, – one of the leading officials of the African National Congress of South Africa, Paul Mashatira. Uh, this was an interview that was done uh, earlier this week uh, discussing 
uh, his role within the ANC and also some of the uh, issues that have come up uh, within the organization over the last week uh, involving the president uh, of the Republic of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, and uh, other uh, topics um, in ahead uh, of the National Elective Conference, uh, which will take place uh, this month uh, uh, on the part of the ruling party, the African National Congress. Let's listen uh, to uh, this uh, extensive interview with Paul Mashatili. The ANC's acting Secretary General has been nominated as Deputy President of the ANC ahead of next month's National Conference. And SABC News political editor um, Zondile Mbeche will be in conversation. In fact, he is now uh, going to be in conversation with uh, Paul Mashadile to find out more about the man and uh, his uh, political aspirations. Um, Zondile, over to you. Well, a very good evening to you, Francis and Bongiwe. Indeed, uh, as you have correctly said, I'm with the Treasurer General of the ANC, who happens to hold many other positions. Uh, it's quite unique, um, given the circumstances around uh, the governing party. He's actually also the Acting Secretary General. If you like, you can even include the Deputy Secretary General, because all those duties he had to handle and there's just another addition just lately, the ANC deputy presidential nominee. You see, I don't know whether he'll be able to handle all those uh, <laughs> titles that he's uh, faced with. Well, on a serious note, uh, um, Mr. Mashatile, yes. are you coping with the kind of work that you are facing? It's quite tough, but uh, when there were challenges, the NEC requested that I assist the SGO. Uh, you'll recall that uh, <clears throat> the only full-time officials at Lutilo House was the Secretary General, Deputy Secretary General, and myself. Uh, so it had to fall on me to uh, take over and make sure that we don't collapse. Uh, I must say we've, we've done well so far under difficult circumstances. Uh, we will be able to arrive at conference and have a very successful conference. Well, many were quite critical, though, uh, of uh, this uh, move by the ANC to say it really has weakened the ANC in many aspects. Mm. Um, in fact, I remember at some point the former president even saying uh, it's unconstitutional. Uh, indeed, um, I, I think the Secretary General's office is a very important uh, uh, office. Uh, many people regard it as the engine of the organization. So if you don't have the SG, Deputy SG, you are weaker. Uh, but I must say I have a very good team at Lutuli House that works yeah. with me, uh, comrades in organizing, in communication, uh, those who are doing research, and various other activities. Uh, we work very well. We pull everything together. Uh, the SGO has been strengthened. We make sure that uh, the officials meet every week. Uh, the NWC fortnightly, and the NEC at least uh, once a quarter. And sometimes we have special NEC meetings because things are moving fast. Yeah. I think the biggest challenge for us was to run regional conferences, uh, provincial conferences. Uh, we ran more than 40, 40 regional conferences and uh, about seven uh, provincial, provincial conferences. And I think all of, of them have gone well so far. There have been disputes there and there, but uh, 
nothing that we couldn't uh, deal with. Even now with national conference, uh, we probably less than 100 uh, disputes at the moment that we will finish quite soon. Yeah. Well, talking about uh, some of the disputes um, in those conferences that you've been running, uh, there's been a threat in some areas of illegal action. Um, are you prepared for this? Uh, will you be able to defend every action you've taken? Well, we, we always anticipate that there may be comrades who are unhappy about this or that. Uh, if we look at our experience of running regional conferences, mm. we were faced with uh, situations like that. So <clears throat> what we've done in the SGO was to make sure that we don't cut corners. Uh, everything we do, we follow the rules. We make sure we are constitutional uh, so that if somebody complains, we might not be found wanting. Uh, but, you know, even if you do things uh, uh, very well, try to be as perfect as you can, mm. there will be someone out there who is not happy, and therefore we need to to be prepared to uh, for those eventualities. But I'm, I'm confident that we, we've done our best to, to stay within the rules and the Constitution. If you do anticipate some of those um, actions from certain members, uh, is it not saying something perhaps about um, the trustworthiness or the integrity of some of the work you do? Because if you do something that everyone can just have a buy-in on, you don't have to worry about those. Well, I, I think we have a lot of buy-in, uh, but let, maybe let me indicate that at the time we started with the processes of conference, uh, we had 3,900 50 plus branches in good standing. Yes. It's quite a huge number. Um, and at the moment, as, as I speak to you, uh, more than 3,500 branches have, have made it. Uh, and therefore, it means it has been a mammoth task. Uh, we, we're actually almost 90% of branches in good standing that have qualified. Um, so you're talking about a huge conference. Uh, we expecting plus minus 4,500 delegates, mm -hmm. um, and if you add other categories, the, also the guests, uh, ambassadors, fraternal organization, the alliance, uh, security, etc., you have no less than 6,000 people during that conference in Nazareth. So it's quite a big task. On the running of your elections, up towards the conference, uh, you were using a new system, the QR code. Yes, yes. Um, and we know that other people were complaining, saying they're being manipulated. Um, how widespread uh, did you get some of those concerns from uh, the membership? And how worried are you that some people could use actually this to perhaps lodge complaints even at the conference? In fact, if you look at uh, the new system that we've implemented, uh, the, the truth is to the contrary. In fact, the system makes it sure that there is no manipulation because it's real-time, cloud-based. Uh, so when a BGM takes place, uh, we will check uh, on the system whether they have more than 100 members. The system will tell us, yes, they are. So when comrades arrive at the BGM, they have to, to be scanned. Their IDs have to be scanned and the system will indicate whether you are in good standing or not. So it doesn't need 
any individual organizer to do that. The system itself will say, well, Mzwandile is not in good standing, mm. so he can't come into the conference. Mm. Um, so I think it has been quite helpful. And, you know, we, we are now becoming a modern party. We are modernizing. So we have to go through this process of issuing QR codes, yes. uh, going digital. I think it's working very well. Some of your conferences um, uh, were, I think, were held at the credentials level. No. I remember how then it had to be concluded over two weeks. No. I remember the Eastern Cape, it only dealt with serious issues on the last day. Um, of course, there were those who went smoothly. Are we not going to witness something similar at the national conference where credentials will stop the conference? I don't think so. Um, in fact, the reason why we're taking our time and making sure that BGMs uh, go and rerun again and again is actually to prevent that. So that by the time you come to conference, you have less disputes. Yeah. Uh, because the disputes are the one that makes it difficult to adopt credentials. So what we have done, I mean, I, I met one comrade uh, in Soweto, I went to a function, and the comrade came to me and said, TG, you know, our branches were only shot about three people. Mm. And I said, no, go and rerun, uh, because that will create a dispute. If we allow you, mm. you are below 50 plus one, others are going to complain. So we, we make branches to rerun again and again, some of them three times. Mm. Um, so if you look at more than 3,500 branches, are uh, actually branches who have made it. Yeah. Uh, clean, no cutting corners, and therefore less disputes and less challenges for your credentials in conference. When you look at your whole process, uh, the electoral committee, for example, one of your senior members um, actually disputed um, uh, some of the, the outcome of the, of, the, of the nomination process, uh, which came out through the electoral committee, Mamlindi uh, Vesesulu. So if someone as senior as her would still feel there are things that are not done right, so what would stop from an, an ordinary member from raising an issue because he or she would have seen the senior do the same? So does that not really call into question uh, some of your uh, processes? Well, you recall that uh, the Electoral Commission is run separately from the NGO, is, is chaired by Comrade Halima. So I don't deal with uh, nominations, nobody in the SGO. So Comrade Lindy was right to complain to them uh, if she feels that uh, things are going right. I think it's also good if you know, comrades complain early rather than late, because then the commission can check if there are problems. Uh, I think the rules allow that uh, whoever is not satisfied must raise their complaints so that they are dealt with. They must not wait until we get into conference. It will be too late. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a problem. If somebody feels, you know, the nominations announced are not the number I know of, indeed, uh, contact the Electoral Commission. They, they have the steps. They'll be able to help you. Um, Treasurer General, um, we are talking about the ANC, which happens to be the governing party. Yeah. Um, why should ordinary South Africans actually care 
uh, that we are going to a conference, we are going to elect leadership. Well, South Africans do care because uh, if the ANC elect wrong people, uh, leaders who are not credible, leaders who are not interested in fighting corruption, leaders who don't care about them, then they will be in trouble. So, so they are watching. Uh, some of them are not in our branches, but they are very interested to know come December, beyond the 20th, uh, who actually will be at the helm of the organization. And uh, also, uh, you know, being sure that these are leaders that will help change things in the country. Uh, we want to fix not only the ANC, yeah. but we want to fix what is happening in government. Many people complain that we sometimes move too slow in implementation, so we need to speed up. And, and they must get a sense that the leadership that is coming will do exactly that. So the current leadership, um, do you get the sense that uh, they've been doing exactly that or they've been lacking someone? Well, I think the comrades have been trying their best. It, it has not been easy, especially if you look at the fact that we had COVID-19. You know, that period of COVID-19, little could be done. Um, and so we're, in a, in a sense, in a period of recovery. Um, and, and we need to give everybody an, an, a, a benefit of the doubt that uh, uh, if it was not for COVID, they would have moved faster. Yeah. But now let's, let's, let's uh, get involved in the recovery phase. Okay. Maybe let's not talk about uh, COVID yeah. because it's uh, yeah. just recent. Um, South Africans have really been complaining about poor services, mm. particularly in, municip in municipalities. Mm. Um, who do you blame for that in, well, in, 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 in most parts of the country? Well, mo most of the municipalities are run by uh, comrades who are members of the ANC. Yes. So when, when there are weaknesses and mistakes there, we take responsibility. In fact, we have spent a lot of time going to all these municipalities. Uh, you have seen us going around the country. In fact, in many instances, we have even changed uh, the comrades who are deployed there because we know that if they fail, we will be blamed. Uh, and we can't run away. Uh, where our comrades are responsible and they are failing, we must take responsibility. But the important thing is that we must implement and change things. Let's not leave comrades if they are failing to sit there and continue. And we have not done so. We have, we have okay. changed many of those municipalities. Outside of uh, some of the achievements that you may have scored uh, in, in the years gone by, so are you disappointed with the manner in which some of your comrades have executed their responsibilities? I mean, one of the hallmarks really of the past few years mm. is the potholes everywhere, not just in one in one town. Perhaps if it was in one town, you would say this leadership here was wrong. But you go across, you go to Limpopo, and Eastern Cape everywhere, people are complaining about the same thing. And the ANC has been in power in most of those municipalities. What went wrong? Why should people trust the ANC again? Well, indeed, there are, there are areas where we have had uh, poor leadership. And, you know, when we have poor leadership, things do go wrong. But in some places, uh, comrades are battling with resources. Uh,
some municipalities don't have a tax base. Uh, absolutely none. Uh, it doesn't mean you can go and whip them and do whatever. They don't have those resources. They are relying on national government. National government is also overstretched. But we, we will prioritize these issues. I mean, we are determined to go out there and check if comrades are not fixing potholes and resources are being squandered elsewhere, the ANC must remove them and put people who are going to fix the roads and not squander the resources. So, yes, we have had those weaknesses, but uh, we are intervening. So, are you hopeful that the leadership that will be elected in Nazareth in the next 18 days mm -hmm. will be able to, deal, to rise up to the challenge of those issues? More than hopeful. Uh, I think uh, we are men and women who are determined to hit the ground running. Why? Because most of the people who will be elected from the nominations are people we've always known about, are people who have been in positions. Well, I think there will be a mixture uh, in December. I, I foresee a situation where you'll have uh, uh, new blood, uh, particularly young people with a lot of energy. Uh, I would like to see more young people uh, in the NEC, even if it's 60% of the NEC, full of young people who can run, who can uh, go out there and change things. The current um, is obviously left with 18 days, mm. um, and then we've, you have been part of this current leadership. Mm. If you were to give yourself um, max out of 10, how much would you give yourself? I'd rather leave that to the branches. <laughs> I think they must call me. Uh, I believe I'm working. Not you as an I'm individual, I'm talking about leadership. Oh, about around the, the whole team. All of the years. Yeah, well, well, you know, let's look at who will be nominated and elected in December. Okay, we can see the nominations are coming in. The additionals have not come in yet. Yes. But for me, it's a sign of confidence the you may not have done everything, but we want to give you another chance. So if they bring us who have been there, they are actually saying, look, uh, go again for it. Uh, and therefore, we must not disappoint them. Let's go and, and if they think that we're 8 out of 10, we must now push to uh, 9 out of 10 or even 10 out of 10. Do you think the current leadership should be changed? I'm specific now yeah. at the top six level. Well, I think the branches uh, uh, don't quite think so. If you look at the nominations, they may not nominate all of us, yeah. uh, but uh, it's clear that some are being nominated. And I always believe that uh, uh, the branches must have a final say because they are the ones that are measuring us. They are the ones who are watching us. Even this thing of uh, how the other candidates are doing, I don't think we should judge one another or even select one another. Let the branches do that. Let me talk to Paul Mashatile, <laughs> a member of the ANC, not yeah. the TG, not the person nominated. Yeah. So who would you nominate as president of the ANC? Well, at the moment, you know what I do when I go to the to my branch uh, as a leader. I always don't want to take 
the the front part and when they say let's nominate the president i'm the one raising the hand or my hand first i always uh, pull back allow the ordinary branches to be the ones that nominate and convince me that that's the right way so so far i've i've kept my duty because i think it's not correct it's, when when candidates start selecting okay one another. that is the duty of the branches that's what you're telling yeah. Yeah. you are a branch member it's your duty as a branch, branch. as a branch that is why i said uh, um, I'm removing <laughs> these titles that, that, that buy you from speaking. I'm speaking to a branch member right now. Yeah, you, you say when you are a leader, it's very difficult to remove the title. So when I get to my branch in LX, uh, they see the PG. Okay, okay. They don't I see, I see, I, I, I see you, you are avoiding <laughs> me. Um, what, who did your branch leader nominate? Uh, your branch. In, in Alex, yes, uh, Comrade Cyril. Did you go along with it? Well, unfortunately, that day I was not there, but I respect what my branches want. Do you, uh, do you respect what your branches want? Yeah. So you support it as well? I respect what they want. Okay. Yeah. Um, you've also been nominated as the Deputy President of the ANC. Mm -hmm. um, so something, you also issued a statement thanking um, mm -hmm. the membership. Hmm. What will you bring should the members say, indeed, you are our deputy president? What is it that you are going to do differently or you're going to bring to the, to the organization that we don't know about? Well, firstly, let me say I'm very humbled by the nomination. It means it's a sign of confidence. All I can promise, uh, not only the branches of the ANC, but uh, even South Africans that support us out there, that uh, uh, I will work hard, I will work as part of the collectives, and I will focus on what people see as a priority. They want to see an economy that is growing, yes. economy that is creating jobs, they want to see people having clean, drinkable water, they want to see load shedding be something of the past. So to the extent that my colleagues and the collective will be working hard to resolve those issues, I will be there. You know, Mr. Mashadile, I've really heard this so many times. You know, the advantage I have is that I've been around in this industry <laughs> for quite some time. Yes, yes, I know. That this kind of talk, yeah. I've heard it for a long time from the leaders of the ANC. Mm. It's not new. Mm. So what is it that would be different this time around? Well, we are making a commitment. And, uh, and you've made, it before. You've made yeah, it before. But we come December, there will be a new leadership. And I will not doubt that this new leadership uh, will change things. Uh, I want to be part of that collective because I think I can make a contribution. I worried that uh, a province like KZN, I know they, 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 they're not very open, but there's something they are saying that they may withdraw uh, their support for you because you may not have um, come to the party. So I don't know what that means. I'm sure in your own party lingo you are able to understand each other. Are you not worried that uh, you may actually end up not making it? No, no, I'm not worried at all. Uh, 
you know, national conference is not a decision of one province. And I think the sooner many of our comrades understand that, the better. But the good thing is that the comrades in KZN are engaging with other comrades. Uh, if some, there's something that irritates them, they will talk to other comrades. They, they actually, they've been moving around. They've been to Limpopo, Gaute. As we speak, discussions are going on. So I think we should look forward to a situation where comrades will find one another because uh, we have uh, huge responsibilities we must deal with uh, come next year. And I think we must not be fighting over petty things. Huge responsibilities. Um, the people who are the front runners for the position of president, uh, President Sudo Ramaphosa mm. and Dr. Zuelim Kize, um, I know they are not charged, but they are facing some issues. The Palapala issue with President Ramaphosa and the, the digital vibes with um, uh, Dr. Mkhize. Mm. Does it worry you that uh, the people, any of the person who could be president, could be facing some of those difficulties immediately after being elected? Well, first let me say the president did indicate to the NEC that he would like to see due process taking place uh, and that we should wait uh, for those reports. The NEC agreed. Uh, Dr. Mkhize as well is going through due process. I know that uh, there are some other issues that he has appealed against. So my attitude is that uh, uh, let's give the comrades an opportunity to go through those processes. I don't think we should condemn anyone. I, I think I understand that, uh, TG. Um, but I think my question is basically, as the ANC, not necessarily you as an individual, as the ANC, as the collective, mm. here are people who could, who could potentially be faces of the, the ANC come the 20th of December. And then we know there are some issues that they are faced with. And if, let's say, any of them wins mm. and then they get charged, so that should be a great concern to you as the party. Well, if I understand you, you are saying we could potentially face a crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. The ANC has for many years uh, been able to deal with uh, moments of crisis. Uh, I have confidence that at that particular point, if we have such an eventuality, the ANC will rise to the occasion. Let's say that uh, the membership decides that, well, maybe let's uh, wait on these comrades. Yeah. Let's look at other comrades who, who may not be faced with similar situation. And then they come to Paul Mashatili to say, actually, we had nominated you for deputy, but clearly, given our assessment, we actually think from the floor we want you to run for president. Something you may consider. Well, I don't think at this stage it's, uh, it's something that is on the cut. My sense is that we are 18 days before conference. We will go through with all candidates we have. <clears throat> if in future there are challenges, the NEC will meet, review the situation. We may even call the National General Council and say, look, uh, we have uh, a crisis here. Uh, what do you do? And what the General Council might consider might not even be Paul Mashadil, it might be somebody else. 
but we will cross but that bridge. In this instance, I'm talking to Paul Mashadile. Yeah. I'm laying out a scenario in the next 18 days. Well, Paul Mashadile is part of that collective. Uh, the day there is a, a moment that uh, the AC has a crisis, the NEC want to review, or the National General Council, I will be there with the collective, but I cannot say sitting here, you know, they have to choose me or they'll okay. have to choose okay. me. Let me put it this way. You are available for deputy president. Yeah. Are you available for president? No, no, for deputy. You are not available for president? No. Even if the floor rises and says Mr. Mashatili should rise? I don't think there will be a floor. Well, we always get told <laughs> when we ask people about uh, uh, not getting nominated and they say, will rise from the floor. If the floor decides Mr. Mashadile must rise as the president, Therefore, would you reject that? Well, at the moment, there is no indication that we, we have a crisis. We have two candidates uh, running. But I've, 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 I've said something about them facing issues. That is why I'm specific on Paul Mashadile. He is asked to rise from the floor. Well, you will be at the conference if there's that eventuality I'm sure you'll see a caucus meeting. They'll come and brief you what's happening. I think for now we should yeah. not speculate beyond this okay. uh, because we could be misunderstood. Okay. Let's move on to issues still uh, related to that. Mm. On Wednesday, um, Mr. Mashadile, the, the, the panel of experts, uh, the one in Parliament which has been tasked with um, investigating whether the President has the case to answer, will hand over the report. Mm. Uh, I know that uh, the President took you in, in confidence, the NEC, but let's pause for a moment and the panel says, actually, your President has a case to answer. Does that really worry you as the NEC? Well, well if, if there's a, any challenge against any of our leaders, uh, we always have to be worried, uh, but we believe that due process is important. Uh, at the moment, I know that uh, the panel will present its report to the Speaker on Wednesday. Already, our team in, 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 in Parliament said they will come and brief us, so we'll be ready on Wednesday to receive a report and, and hear what it says. We must always be ready to deal with challenges. I think the work we do is not easy. Uh, we, we, we are ready. So what is the position of the ANC on this matter? Um, because we are talking about actually uh, one more, two days. <laughs> two days. It's, 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 it's not something we are theorizing about. It's something that is happening in two days. What is the position of the ANC in terms of how you will approach it? Should I know if it says there's no case to answer, mm. so you, you wouldn't be worried. But should it say there's a, should it say there's a case to answer? Remember, this is the face of your party. This is the head of state. So what happens to him? We may all be equal, but he's the first among the equals. I spoke to the team in my office uh, when we heard that the report will be ready on Wednesday, and I indicated to them that. Come Wednesday, we should have a special meeting of officials, uh, what you normally call the top six. At the moment, we are four. We should have a meeting 
and look at what the report says. We don't want any of our officials to start commenting until we have that meeting. So for now, I want to leave it at that. So you have no position, is that what you're saying? Yeah. We're waiting, and we'll have a discussion on Wednesday. Um, clearly, it's the issue from what you are saying, as much as you're not saying much, that is bothering you from your, your expression. No, no, obviously, if there's a, a matter of that magnitude, any leader will be uh, bothered. But I think it's important for leaders to converse, have a discussion, and not rush to, to make conclusions. That's why we will be meeting on Wednesday. Would you have preferred, as the ANC, not necessarily as you as a person, mm. that the president could have handled this matter differently? Well, so, I, that, so that we, we are not having this kind of discussion? Well, I, I, I'm not sure how else you would have handled it, uh, because in his view he said, let's allow a, a transparent process to deal with the matter. Uh, I, I think that's the best way, so that there's nobody who can say the president interfered with anything. All these are independent bodies. And I think it's the best way that when they conclude, they conclude with that kind of integrity. And the president has not said anything, has not gone nearer, and nobody can say there was manipulation. I think it's the best way to have independent bodies deal with matters of that magnitude. So you are also occupying the office of the uh, Secretary General yes. because of the step aside. So which obviously affected him. He has been in court for quite some time, but there hasn't been any resolution. You, um, you were quick as the NC. I know it was your resolution. Mm. You were quick to resolve on this matter, and then find someone who can't even contest um, because of, the, of, of these issues. Is there a sense? that you probably could have handled this thing differently around the SG and of course and others? Well, it took, it took quite a while to, to deal with this matter. You recall that at conference the resolution was that uh, we want to deal with crime and corruption decisively and that one of the issues that is uh, creating problems for the image of the ANC if, if there are allegations against leaders and they are not being dealt with, and hence a decision that we must come up with the mechanism of step aside. Yes. Uh, it took, took a while before we could finalize the rules. Once we did, we then asked comrades to voluntarily go to the Integrity Commission to clear their names. Many have done. Uh, some were even called by the Integrity Commission. Um, and we respected that process. Uh, some who did not comply, the NEC had to take a decision to enforce the step aside on them or even a, a suspension. I, I don't think there's anybody was targeted or dealt with unfairly. Uh, I think everybody has been given an opportunity. And by the way, many people don't, don't know that the step aside rule has an appeal mechanism. So all those comrades can actually appeal. As it is applied currently, do you think it's fair?
do you think uh, it is the right way to do it, as it's being applied currently? Very fair. In fact, uh, the step-aside rule says come voluntarily. Uh, because if you do so, remember the, the Integrity Commission is, is not a, a tribunal yeah. that will find you guilty or not. All they do, they pronounce on whether your conduct uh, or what has happened to you, whether you are uh, charged with a serious crime, uh, brings the ANC into disrepute. Mm -hmm. What should happen afterwards is the decision of the ANC structure, your disciplinary committees, your NEC. The Integrity Commission itself mm -hmm. uh, does not charge people or clear them. All they do is to pronounce whether such conduct brings disrepute to the ANC because we want to protect brand ANC, not individuals. Some of your senior comrades have really complained to say as much as they are not opposed to it in principle, the manner in which it has been applied has been unfair. Do you share that sentiment? I've heard comrades really complaining, and, and it's, it's a lived experience. Maybe in their view what has happened to them was not fair, uh, but it was not intended to be like that. Uh, to the extent that uh, others feel that uh, the application is unfair, I think we should relook at that. Let's come to resolutions of the party. Uh, some of the resolutions of the step aside is part of them. Mm. Um, do you want the bank to be nationalized? Reserve bank? <laughs> It's a decision of conference. You recall that at conference uh, we took that decision. We came back as, as the leaders. Uh, we looked at the implementation, and those who are deployed in government came back and said, hey, there's a challenge here because, you know, we need to pay out minority shareholders, and it's a lot of money. Do want us to rather use this money for service delivery or pay these people? And we, we thought, well, if we have to pay a lot of money now, rather let's use it for service delivery. There's a big debate now because there are those who are saying, no, in fact, it won't be a lot of money. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so I think we should look at it and engage with those who are there. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> there were some people who were saying, you know, the value of the South African bank could be as, as, as high as, as 600 billion rents. So to pay minority shoulders, you might even need 50 billion. And there are other people recently that have been engaging with us who say, no, no, in fact, it will be much less. Don't worry. If your worry is the money, don't worry. Do it. It will be less. We, we are open-minded because the issue is not so much... Uh, whether we wanted to nationalize or not, it was the implementation thereof. Okay. What is your view, uh, being informed by the ANC on this matter? Uh, my view whether yes. we should nationalize yes. or not. Obviously using the ANC template. Well, I go, I go with the decision of the ANC, but cautious of the timing and how we get the resources. Uh, should indeed it be true that we don't need the kind of resources that are bended around, we, we will proceed to make sure that the bank is uh, publicly owned 100%. So why have you failed um, on the land issue um, to pass anything in Parliament? 
Uh, remember, uh, mm. you, you were not able to garner support from the most enthusiastic people around land, the EFF. It, well, we didn't have a two-thirds majority, so we needed to agree with the EFF uh, absolutely. But there were situations where we could not agree on certain principled and formulation matters. And so something that was agreed upon was somewhere in between because of lack of that agreement. Because it, it is our two parties, the ANC and the EFF, that could take that resolution through uh, without a problem. But once we couldn't agree, it, it suffered. But it's not like the doors are closed for engagement with the EFF. That leads me to the next question, looking ahead to 2024. Yeah. Um, obviously, you are hoping for a decisive victory, mm. but it's possible it may not happen. Yeah. Will you be open to working with EFF or any other party in a coalition government should you fail to, um, to, 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 to get over 50%? Indeed, uh, we, it has always been our position that let's work with others. Uh, but of course, when we go into election, we we campaign to win and win decisively. But we have already accepted the reality that uh, we may not, and therefore we must be prepared to to work with 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 other parties. And you can see it's happening already in local government. Yeah. Our comrades have been meeting with the EFF and other parties and coming to good agreements to run those municipalities. Because we are going to a close now, yeah. uh, Mr. Mashatile. Let me put you on the spot. Yeah. If you were to choose between the DA and EFF, who would you work with? <laughs> you really put me on the spot. But yes. the EFF and the ANC's policies are quite similar. So we are much closer to the EFF than we are to the DA in terms of policies and ideologies. Is that an answer that you would more prefer to work with EFF? Indeed. But in Ekuruleni, you have not been able to work together. Why? We are. No, I'm talking about uh, the, 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 the mayorship there, so had to go back to the DA because you couldn't agree. Yeah, it was not so much uh, the ANC refusing to work with, with the EFF. I think it was more our comrades there not agreeing on the approach. Uh, as I speak to you, the EFF and the ANC are still meeting. Well, <laughs> Mr. Mashatile, thank you very much. I don't want thank to spoil this any further. I'll certainly <laughs> will meet and we'll talk and yeah. I'll remind you on a number of issues yeah. even if the floor decides to do its own thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let the floor do its, its Well, thing. Well, Francis, uh, that was the uh, the Treasurer General of the ANC, who is also occupying the position of the Secretary General. Um, and then he has a new one, um, the ANC Deputy President nominee. So I don't know on the 20th whether we'll be calling him the pres Deputy President of the ANC. Welcome back. And that was the uh, interview uh, with Paul uh, Masatile, uh, who is... Uh, a nominee for the Deputy President of the African National Congress at their upcoming National Elective Conference in South Africa in about two weeks' time. 
We'll take a break. Um, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Today is Saturday, December 3rd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll be right back. You can find it all 
Welcome back. Uh, that was uh, the sound of Bobby Womack uh, with the classic track entitled Across 110th Street. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, December 3rd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to go into a briefing uh, from uh, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and they'll be talking about the uh, status of public health on the African continent. Uh, Let's listen in. morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're joining us from. Welcome to our weekly Africa CDC press uh, briefing. Uh, this section covers uh, reports and highlights updates on the public health emergencies across uh, the continent. And this section is usually brought to you uh, by the acting director of the Africa CDC, Dr. Ahmed Okwe Oman, uh, as our regular host for this section every week. Uh, today's briefing, as usual, is going to focus on the key situations on the continent, including the COVID-19 situation, the current status of uh, the COVID-19 situation. Uh, in addition to that, there will also be updates on the Ebola situation happening currently in the Republic of Uganda, and then other public health emergencies in other countries that are uh, currently taking the attention of Africa CDC in terms of response. And uh, also the director will highlight uh, key initiatives and uh, support Africa CDC is currently offering. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, briefing, and um, there appears to be some uh, technical problem, and uh, we're here at the Pan-African Journal. Your question and answer. Uh, So until we reach that brief, let me turn it over to the director for his briefing for this section. Uh, Dr. Ahmed, over to you for the briefing. Thank you. So thank you, Nick, and um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, depending on where you're joining us from, and welcome to um, this uh, briefing on World AIDS Day. Um, that is also another pandemic uh, which continues to ravage the continent, 
And um, it's important that we continue to remember that we have not yet brought it fully under control. So today is World AIDS Day, and let's remember those who uh, need our support um, in as far as HIV and AIDS is concerned. So today I would like to uh, share with you uh, five different um, outbreaks on the continent that are of public health uh, uh, importance. Uh, The five are, I'll start with COVID, uh, then I will do Ebola Ebola virus um, outbreak in Uganda, then I will do the multi-country MPOX outbreak, um, then cholera, and finally Crimean Congo hemorrhagic uh, fever. Um, Let me start with COVID. And um, when we look at the continent, the total number of cases that we've documented to date from the beginning of the pandemic is uh, just over 12.1 million. And um, this accounts for 2% of the global number of uh, cases of uh, COVID that have been documented. We have unfortunately lost uh, 256,178 people here on the continent of Africa. Um, and this gives us a case fatality rate of 2.1%. The number of people who have passed away here in Africa constitutes about 4.1% of the global deaths. It's important uh, for us to remind ourselves that our 2.1% uh, case fatality rate is nearly double that of the rest of the world. So it is important that we bear that in mind as we continue to control the COVID-19 pandemic here on the continent. When we look at the total number of cases reported to date, um, there is five countries who make up 60% of the number of cases, and that is South Africa with 33%. Morocco with 10%, Tunisia with 9%, uh, while Egypt and Libya each has 4% of the total number of the 12 million cases documented here on the continent. When we look at the trends for week 47, and that's the week running between the 21st and the 27th of November, and then we compare that with uh, the AP week 46, the situation is as follows. In this AP week 47, the number of new cases we've documented on the continent is 6,993. This is a 23% decrease from AP week um, 46. While the highest proportion of new cases uh, we are seeing from the southern region, which has 51%, eastern with 22%, Northern region with 20%, while Central has 4 and uh, Western region has 3% of the new cases that we've seen during AP Week um, 47. The countries that are reporting the highest number of cases during this week are South Africa with 3,491 and Morocco with 1,081. Unfortunately, We have also documented a total of 37 new deaths, which is, again, a 26% decrease from the previous week. So uh, this week, 47, we are seeing a drop, significant drop. In fact, 
um, of 23% in the number of cases and also a significant drop, 26% in the number of uh, new deaths. For the four-week trend analysis, when we look at the period the 31st of October to the 27th of November and compare with the month before, we see that we have documented an overall 7% increase in the number of new cases on the continent. So for the month, it is an increase of 7% in the number of new cases. While we look at deaths, we see a 3% average decrease during this um, uh, analysis of the month. Overall, therefore, we have observed an average in the new uh, cases over the last four weeks um, on the continent, but we continue to monitor um, with our member states to ensure that um, we are keeping uh, the tools that are working for us. These are public health measures, vaccination, and uh, surveillance, particularly genomic surveillance, because need to be sure that there are no new variants or subtypes that are coming into circulation. For vaccination, to date, we have uh, had 1.035 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines uh, delivered to the continent. Out of these, we have administered 806 million, which gives us um, a consumption rate of 77.9% for the doses that we have received. You will recall that uh, we are progressively moving uh, to the new denominator of 12 years and above for reasons of we do not vaccinate um, below 12 years of age. So we want to be sure that we are getting the right proportions and that those figures are being reworked based on um, uh, the for populations that are 12 years and above. But using the previous denominator of total population, to date we have a coverage of 26.1% of the total population, making it 366 million people that we have vaccinated here on the continent of Africa. As we continue to roll out um, the Saving Lives and Livelihood Initiative across the continent, we are seeing a boost in terms of increases in um, vaccination rates, um, in terms of better uptake of vaccination um, by populations here and communities here on the continent. And we are also seeing increase in um, uh, the number of doses uh, that uh, we are replacing as we continue to vaccinate um, our fellow citizens here on the continent. In fact, just for last week, we have administered uh, two point, nearly 2.6 million doses. That is just in the past one since the last briefing. Nearly 2.6 million doses have been administered. We've also seen an increase in those who are taking booster shots, and we now stand at 3%, which is 43 million uh, individuals who have received their booster shots across uh, Africa. We continue to work with our member states to increase uh, vaccination rates because we, very, we are very keen that we get as close as possible uh, to uh, the 7% that we had put as a target. So this is COVID-19 um, 
uh, update. And now let me shift to the second public health event of um, uh, a significance on the continent, and that is uh, the Ebola virus outbreak in Uganda, uh, specifically for the Sudan uh, strain. Since the last briefing, um, to date, one new confirmed fatal case of uh, Sudan virus was reported in Uganda. You recall that last time we did not have any new cases, um, but this time the case um, which um, was um, uh, confirmed at death um, has um, made us uh, start uh, re-evaluating how um, the, that particular outbreak is going on um, in the country. Um, this, the confirmed death was the result of um, a stillbirth of um, someone who was a survivor of um, uh, the, uh, the Ebola outbreak, so an individual who had survived um, the, the outbreak and had gone through her days of observation and had been released, um, then delivered uh, stillbirth, which was uh, positive for um, this particular Sudan variant of, uh, of the virus. The survivor is currently admitted and um, uh, undergoing treatment after confirmation that the child uh, the, the the child that was born at death, I mean the the, the child that died at uh, at um, at birth, um, actually had the virus, and uh, we continue to monitor this particular survivor um, uh, for uh, the time that is required. We want to be sure that uh, the grieving mother is in good uh, health, otherwise, uh, and to be sure that uh, she can be able to be reintegrated into the community. It is a sad situation to lose a child, uh, and then uh, go back to the treatment uh, unit. Since the beginning of uh, the Sudan um, virus um, disease outbreak, we have seen 142 confirmed cases. We have seen 56 confirmed deaths from nine districts of Uganda. This means that um, we've actually been losing approximately four out of every 10 people who are confirmed to have uh, this Ebola um, virus. We are also sad to note that uh, healthcare workers account about 14% of the cases um, that have been confirmed and 13% of the number of deaths that have been confirmed to be a result of uh, uh, the Ebola uh, virus um, outbreak. The trend still continues as last time, but uh, it is the most active and the most productive part of the population um, that are affected, and that is persons between 20 and 39 years of age. In terms of contacts, we continue to follow up uh, with the contact right now. Uh, the follow-up rate is uh, 70% of those who have been identified, and those are about 565 people. Um, and um, the number of contacts who have now completed their 25 days of follow-up and have been released um, cumulatively stands at about 3,636, which is 81% of the total number of contacts. So the contact 
tracing is uh, quite successful at uh, 81% uh, of those who have been documented as being exposed to a case that has been confirmed. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is working with partners, including ourselves as Africa CDC, um, to secure um, the areas where the contacts are, to provide the right information to the community so that they are able uh, to uh, themselves uh, monitor how their communities are doing, how individuals who have been exposed within the communities, um, where they are, and, uh, of course, uh, those who have been uh, uh, identified as contacts are being um, secured so that they are not a risk to the rest of the population. So the ministry there, the government of Uganda is doing quite well in terms of uh, securing the areas where we have we had uh, cases and where we have uh, contacts who are under uh, uh, monitoring. We continue to build the capacity of um, the different areas of work, laboratory services, infection prevention and control, surveillance, including cross-border surveillance. We are also working with the neighboring countries um, to ensure that uh, the capacity to be able to quickly identify any case and contain it uh, is also there. And we are doing this as part of our public health response, uh, not because um, there is any real fear that um, a case may go beyond um, uh, Uganda. So for the um, Ebola virus disease outbreak in Uganda, I can repeat, it's under control, and um, we are looking forward to start countdown um, of um, the, the outbreak when we are reasonably certain that there are no new cases um, that have been identified. As soon as the last batch of uh, contacts finish their days, then we will begin that countdown. So that's the second um, uh, public health event of significance that I wanted to share. Third is the MPOX multi-country outbreak, um, which is both here in Africa as well as globally. And um, the situation since our last briefing is a total of 51, that is 5-1 new confirmed cases and 4 new deaths of MPOX have been reported in the DRC. This is more than a 100% increase in the number of new confirmed cases compared to the last briefing. Similarly, here in Africa, we have now seen 1,047 confirmed cases, 202 deaths, which gives us a case fatality rate for MPOX of 193 percent being reported across 13, one, three um, member states of the African uh, Union. Three countries, though, the DRC, Ghana, and Nigeria, account for um, about 94 percent of all the confirmed cases that have been reported uh, on the continent. I was recently in the um, Republic of Korea, and uh, during my visit there, we have concluded negotiations for um, a donation uh, by the Republic of Korea to Africa CDC and uh, by extension to Africa Union member states, um, uh, 50,000 doses of vaccine that we have for MPOX that we um, are now 
finalizing how they get to the to the continent, and then we begin to distribute them to areas where uh, it is most needed. And uh, the priority is going to be our health workers in the front line, and then the communities where uh, the epicenters have been identified. So we are very grateful to the Republic of Korea for their generous donation of uh, 50,000 doses of uh, second generation um, uh, vaccines for uh, MPOX. The fourth um, is the multi-country outbreak. And since the last briefing, we have documented 10,171 new cases for our countries, and that is Ethiopia, Kenya, Malawi, and Nigeria. And this is more than 100% increase in the number of new cases compared to the last briefing. Over the last four weeks, when we look at the four-week period, there has been a 185% average increase in the number of new cases for cholera uh, that have been reported across the continent. This is a cause for concern because the numbers have become uh, large in terms of increase and um, um, are related to some climatic conditions, including flooding in uh, Cameroon, uh, Nigeria, um, uh, Sudan, um, South Sudan as well. Uh, countries that are experiencing flooding are also experiencing larger numbers of those who are being reported to have uh, cholera. As you know, we have um, uh, difficult shortage in um, uh, the vaccine, and therefore um, we are working with our member states uh, so that we can be able to use other measures um, apart from vaccines to protect the population and uh, provide them uh, with uh, the necessary treatment when they are diagnosed uh, with cholera. So far, from the beginning of uh, this year, 14 of our member states have been affected uh, with uh, cholera, and we continue to work with those uh, who are having active uh, cholera cases, including Ethiopia, Kenya, Malawi, and Nigeria, as I've reported there. We have technical teams on the ground to support uh, the government, even as we look for ways of um, getting more um, cholera vaccines to the affected areas. Finally, today is um, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever um, in Uganda. The government there reports six new cases and one new death of uh, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. Um, and this gives us a case fatality rate of 16. But the good news is that this is a 45% decrease in the number of new cases since we did the briefing. We are using the same infrastructure we are using for Ebola virus to um, do surveillance and monitor uh, the Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever in Uganda. And um, the uh, results are that we are seeing the number of cases going down as the population um, becomes better at uh, protecting themselves and identifying cases early and avoiding um, exposure and therefore interrupting uh, circulation uh, within the communities. In terms of um, other areas, um, I have three pieces of information that I would like to share today. 
Um, one is it's only about uh, two weeks to the Conference of Public Health uh, in Africa in Kigali in Rwanda, and I hope that you have registered and we are going to see you um, uh, at the meeting. Uh, those who may not have registered, please continue to register. Registration is open. Um, and we have uh, received overwhelming interest, particularly in side events um, for this meeting. And uh, a full list of that is going to be found on the conference or our website, www.cphia2022.com. Uh, please do visit um, so that you can see the list of side events that will be of interest to you apart from the main conference uh, events. And the side events will begin um, on the uh, 11th, uh, on the 10th, actually, of December um, of 2022, when we'll have our pre-conference um, uh, youth um, meeting there. They're organizing a youth pre-conference on 10th and 11th of um, uh, December uh, in Kigali. So this is the first thing I would like to share about the Conference of Public Health in Africa, and it is youth and its youth pre-conference on the 10th and 11th of December. Second is um, we have been having uh, training for um, the Bingwas. These are the champions for vaccination in Dar es Salaam, and uh, today is um, I think they finish tomorrow. So the the training has been very good. Uh, we are getting very positive feedback from the young people who we selected uh, to be the youth champions for vaccination and particularly COVID-19 vaccination. And uh, they are going to be ready to be deployed as soon as we have um, the, um, uh, the training uh, is finished. And uh, we'll have a very strong um, program for them. And we'll be reporting back here on a regular basis how our youth champions are doing, and we really encourage all of you uh, to be uh, bingers, not just for COVID-19 vaccination, which is our primary uh, focus right now, but for vaccination in general and public health uh, uh, on the continent of Africa. The third um, thing that I have is that um, we um, have decided at um, the Africa CDC uh, to honor and recognize our frontline health workers. Uh, today, I would like to announce that um, uh, we are going to launch at the Conference of Public Health in Africa uh, the Africa CDC Award for Frontline Health Workers. DRASA, named after uh, Dr. Ameo, for those of you who recall in 2014, um, a Nigerian doctor uh, put her life uh, in the line by securing um, a, an individual who had been exposed to the Ebola virus, had arrived in Lagos, and um, um, she contained that particular patient at great risk to herself. She contracted the virus as well and died out of that uh, exposure. In recognition of her heroic um, um, uh, actions during that time, protecting not just one of the popular cities um, in Africa, but also one of the largest countries in terms of population on the continent. Uh, we are naming this particular award after Dr. Stella Ameo, and we are going to formally launch it at the Conference of Public Health in Africa um, on the 13th of December uh, 2022 uh, during the opening session 
uh, of that conference. We must appreciate the risk, the sacrifice that our health workers are actually uh, exposed and um, we need to make that recognition, um, uh, make others who are joining this profession feel that they are recognized. In the Africa CDC, we recognize them, we appreciate their work, um, and uh, we are going to have uh, this annual award uh, to be given to an individual who is befitting it uh, from amongst the frontline health workers who are dealing with the uh, uh, outbreaks and uh, diseases on a daily basis. So do join us um, next uh, on uh, 13th of December at the opening session of the Conference for Public Health in Africa um, as we launch uh, formally that particular award. But I wanted to share with you this good news today uh, before uh, uh, that award um, is eventually formally launched at the conference. So thank you very much. And looking forward uh, to your questions, Nick. Thank you, Director, for that very comprehensive uh, update on the, the public health events that are happening on the continent. As you just heard in the director's uh, closing of the of the updates, uh, the managing director of uh, DRISA, uh, I, I believe from the technical team, she's trying to join us. Once she's able to join us, we are going to give her the opportunity to be able to say a few words uh, about the event just uh, just uh, within an hour after this briefing. But in the meantime, colleagues, it's now the time for our question and answer session of this briefing. We will continue with that until uh, uh, the MD from DRISA can join us. So uh, there are three ways, as usual, that we send in our questions to the director on this platform. One of those three ways is you can use the question and answer section of this Zoom platform live. You can go in there and type your question and we can see it and be able to forward that to the direction, the director for our response. You can also use the raise hand icon at the bottom of the Zoom screen and then you will be allowed to come to us live. Uh, in addition to that, we have got the usual WhatsApp platform that most of our colleagues on this call know. Uh, that's the number plus two five one nine four five five zero two three one zero. I'll read that again. Plus two five one nine four five five zero two three one zero. You can use that uh, WhatsApp number to also send in your question, and then we will relay that to the director for adequate response. So as I said. We are looking across our screen to see if the MD, the Managing Director from DRISA, has joined us. Once she joins us, we're going to give her the moment. But in the meantime, we will continue with our question and answer. So there are a couple of questions that are come in from our platform from our colleagues, and I'm going to begin with them as we go along. Uh, let me start with uh, our colleague, uh, Judith Akolo, as usual from the Kenya Broadcasting Corporation. Her question is on the issue of our COVID. And generally, she's asking, as we head into the end of year holidays, what are the dangers of a possible rapid increase in cases of COVID-19? And what is diverse from Africa CDC to member states? So Judah wants to know uh, what are the possible dangers that we have rapid increase in COVID cases. Of course, the holidays, uh, many of us are going to be gathering and what is the advice from Africa since? Over to you, Director. 
thank you, uh, Judith, for that question. Um, any situation that brings many people together for extended periods of time is a risk for COVID and other um, diseases that um, are transmissible uh, through uh, uh, close uh, contact and the, and the air. So during the holidays, the holiday per se is not the risk. The risk is the coming together for extended periods of time. And um, our advice to our member states is this is the time to have a very high sense of surveillance uh, within the communities so that um, we can be ahead of any outbreak as soon as or any increase, not just for COVID, but anything else that is easy to transmit from person to person when people come together for extended periods of time. So we are advising that um, our member states have a good surveillance mechanisms in place, and our response teams are going to be on standby. If anything is uh, detected, then we will be able to respond and contain it uh, quickly. We would like um, uh, all of us to have safe holidays. Uh, we are looking forward to members of the public also following the advice of um, uh, their governments and uh, of ourselves as Africa CDC uh, so that we can be able to have a safe uh, uh, holiday. The, the, the important thing here is when we are doing the surveillance, when we are um, uh, working with our member states to, uh, to increase and improve their surveillance um, uh, infrastructure, it is not only for it, it is for any other illness that can be able to disrupt our social and economic activities. So we are strengthening the system and not just for one uh, illness. Thank you. Sorry, I was speaking with my heard it after listening to the information from our our government and as we guidance to go through the holiday from Africa CDC as usual and you can also access this information. Uh, so I'm just informed as you see on our screen uh, Madam Niniola Williams, uh, Managing Director of DRISA, has joined us. So welcome, Madam. So this is what we are going to do to have you uh, join the section. We're going to end uh, this round of questions. There are just two more of them. We're going to end this round of session, and then we take a break and come to you to mention uh, uh, updates on the events that are happening just within uh, an hour of this briefing. So back to you, Director. The second question is on uh, – EVD, and this is from our colleague Esther Nagasi. It comes from with uh, in our WhatsApp group. Esther said, "What is the latest status on the EVD vaccine trial that was supposed to happen in Uganda? Do you have any latest information on that, and you can be able to share with us?" Over to you. Now, thank you, Esther. Um, we await the government of Uganda to inform us when the clinical trials are going to begin. And um, as I'd shared last week, uh, really it is the regulatory process that is being completed uh, so that every aspect of the clinical trials have been well covered legally, they have been well covered ethically, and they have also been well covered logistically. So uh, the government is finalizing those and we are waiting for that good news to be able to come. Suffice is to say that these candidate vaccines that are going to be undergoing clinical trials are a very important step in our um, uh, efforts as Africa 
uh, to actually have all the tools that we need in responding to um, uh, Ebola virus disease, whichever uh, strain uh, that uh, may come. So we are really looking forward to those uh, clinical trials beginning, and we will wait for the government to, to provide that update. Thank you. Okay, following the ethical principles and all of the legal implications involved, uh, before we have something happening in, uh, in Uganda regarding uh, the trial for the Ebola virus, of course, we have to get uh, general information regarding that from the government of uh, Uganda, as the director has mentioned. So just one more last question on from your briefing notes, uh, put in here by our colleagues, and then we'll move on to uh, the MD of Drysa for her comments. So this one says, it's from um, Claire Keaton, and she says, uh, you mentioned the vaccine donation by the MPOS vaccine donation by the Republic of Korea. Uh, she wants to know, has there been member states that have been selected to receive these vaccines as uh, outlined in your in your briefing that there are several member states facing the issue of MPOS? Has there been member states that are selected? If not, what are the criteria for countries to be selected to receive these vaccines? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, again, let me repeat that uh, we are very grateful to the Republic of Korea for this um, very generous donation uh, to um, Africa CDC for use within our member states here in Africa. Uh, we have not yet selected the countries that are going to receive um, these vaccines, and neither have we allocated the numbers uh, which will go uh, to each uh, country. We are going to be working on that. Our criteria um, uh, has three very important, but there's more, but I'd like to share three. One is um, active um, uh, circulation of the Mpox virus within uh, a community. Um, so depending on the, um, the numbers that uh, one has, we'll be, we'll be putting that into the calculation. Um, second is um, deaths. Uh, because the severity um, is different from uh, from place to place depending on the numbers that have been affected. So the number of deaths that a country um, uh, has faced in terms of uh, um, those who are exposed to uh, the Mpox uh, uh, virus. And then uh, the third very important um, uh, criteria that we're going to use is um, the capacity to be able to deliver the the vaccine to where it is required. So uh, of the many things that are there, these three um, I would like to share and uh, in the coming days, as soon as we've completed our analysis and assessments, uh, then we'll be able to make it public uh, who is receiving, how much they're receiving, and what plans we have in place uh, to get these vaccines uh, into people's arms. We are very keen to use the infrastructure that we've already developed under the Saving Lives and Livelihoods Initiative uh, to to use that uh, to get monkeypox, uh, the, the Mpox uh, vaccines uh, to uh, uh, people's arms uh, as well. That's why I was saying that we are building systems and the systems are going to be used to respond uh, to any uh, outbreak, any disease on the continent. So a little patience. We will come back to you with um, more details of countries. That we have a very interesting and uh, comprehensive uh, response to that question. The three criteria as the, will be prioritized 
have been mentioned. So member states will be looking out for that. Uh, so at this point, we are going to take a break from the questions. We have uh, one or two of them that have just come in, but we're going to take a break from the questions. And then we're going to introduce uh, the managing director of uh, the uh, DRYSAT. We're going to introduce the managing director of DRYSAT to join us and give us uh, a few words regarding this program that the director mentioned just at the end of his briefing. And then we will proceed uh, with the questions for the remainder of the time. So, Madam Liniola Williams, um, the floor is over to you uh, for a few comments and updates. Your microphone is now open. Yes, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon to you, um, Director General, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Niniola Williams, and I'm the Managing Director of DRASA Health Trust. Um, DRASA is a public health organization that's working to build a network of health champions who are preventing the spread of infectious diseases and saving lives through um, various areas of our work, from education and training to community engagement, um, emergency planning, and policy change work. Um, those are our core areas of focus. And DRASA is an acronym for Dr. Ameo Stella Adadevo. It's named after my aunt, who was the um, doctor that identified the first Ebola patient in Nigeria in 2014 during the West Africa epidemic. Um, she was a clinician, and as a frontline health worker, she was able to very quickly contain that patient and prevent the spread of the virus in what we know to be one of Africa's most populous countries. So even though she had never seen Ebola before, um, she was able to do that. And in the process of caring for the isolated patient, she was infected, um, and she and three of her colleagues died in the line of duty. And that also sacrifices the Drasa Health Trust was born. Um, throughout her career, she was dedicated to her work, saving lives. She did that for over 21 years, and she was committed to caring for others. Um, so to celebrate her life, um, continue her legacy, and ensure that her efforts, the efforts that led to her death were not in vain, we established the Health Trust as a nonprofit, keeping her memory alive and working towards health security in Nigeria and beyond. Um, it was founded because we believe that one person's actions in one city were enough to protect and save millions of lives. So we believe that investing in health workers, specifically frontline health workers, establishing a large network of them, um, making sure they have the skills and support that they need is what will transform our continent's health. Um, and so our core model, which is reflected across all that we do, is working alongside these health champions to strengthen the health sector together, um, to prevent illness, improve health behaviors, and build a safer and health healthier country and continent. Um, we know, of course, that frontline health workers are the first line of defense that we have against emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. Um, they are the health workers that continually put themselves at risk for the rest of us. And as my aunt said regarding um, her own actions in the face of danger, she did it for the greater public good. And many other frontline workers do the same. And that really must be acknowledged. Um, they face grave danger and such high risks. Um, compared to other populations and other groups because they're coming face-to-face -face with these deadly infectious diseases as they provide direct services from identification to caring for infected people. Um, and we know that it takes a toll on them um, mentally, physically, on their personal lives. 
Um, they often work long hours in under-resourced environments. And we've also seen where sometimes they themselves become the enemy, where they're, you know, kidnapped or physically attacked as they're working in these communities. And despite this, they'll continue to serve us. So this level of sacrifice and courage really must be recognized and celebrated. And um, Africa CDC definitely recognizes the role that these um, health workers play, which is why training and deployment of frontline health workers is one of the um, priority emergency response um, practices for member states in outbreak management. And our mission is very much aligned with the mandate of the Africa CDC and the Africa Union to prevent and control diseases in Africa and invest in our frontline health workforce. Um, we as JASA are committed to this cause and we look forward to nurturing um, more partnerships to support and celebrate these frontline health workers because we know that um, the life of just one frontline health worker is linked to the millions of people that they protect through their work. So it's really with great honor and pride that we're here today, that I'm here today representing DRASA to launch and announce the um, Africa CDC DRASA Continental Award for Emergency Health Workers. Um, we're very pleased to be partnering with Africa CDC on this. And um, we know that through this, we can celebrate and acknowledge our courageous and committed health workers um, who are keeping our continent safe from public health threats. Thank you. No, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very well. And um, Nikki, if I may add two things here. Yes, sir. Uh, to uh, to this conversation. First of all, Niniola, thank you very much uh, for making time. We know you have a crazy um, time zone to, to deal with, but uh, this is part of being a frontline worker. You are now honorably uh, a frontline worker to us. Um, the second is um, it is so, so uh, important that um, we remember, and not just remember, but we do something about it. The, the sacrifice that um, uh, Dr. Ameo Seladarevo, uh, um, uh, giving your life for work is something that is not uh, usual. It is not common. And not just herself, but three other colleagues, uh, because they decided they were going to do it for the greater public good. For us, as Africa CDC and the Africa Union, it is our duty to ensure that we not only don't forget, but going forward, we provide our frontline health workers with the tools they need, with the protection they need, and with the motivation to continue doing the difficult work that they are doing. So in a very small way, we are um, uh, you know, launching the, the award, the, DRAS, the Africa CDC DRASA um, Award, um, not so much to remember that um, she died doing her work, but much more is to appreciate that she was there for us um, uh, to be able to be that first line of defense uh, that kept that virus away uh, from uh, Nigeria in general, in fact, spreading to other parts um, uh, of uh, the continent and even uh, the world. So the memory is for the excellent work that she and her colleagues did, and we are intending this award to be annual. We will be making up an open call after the conference so that we have nominations and we'll have uh, a committee that will go through the nominations and we'll be picking um, uh, the most deserving out of uh, the thousand, believe, that are going to uh, be nominated. 
And um, the recognition is really a call to other institutions, to other organizations to do the same. We need to continue recognizing our frontline health workers and then providing them with the support that they need uh, to be able to continue uh, to do the work. So thank you very much, Niniola. Pass our uh, gratitude to uh, the, the Drasa Health Trust. Um, uh, and um, really, we are looking forward uh, to this particular award being one of the most important awards in healthcare on the continent in the years to come. Thank you, and back to you, Nick. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Anelia, and thank you, Director, for the additional comments and uh, uh, trying to share with us the significance of why we're going to be having this uh, award uh, in honor of the hero, I will say, uh, being myself from the West Africa belt. So just around that comment, before that conversation, before we close it up, uh, I think the director already started mentioning what the criteria or setting will look like in terms of how the award would be would be going. But uh, one of our colleagues has just come into quickly with this one. Uh, James Chaget just wants to know what would be the criteria uh, for the selection of the health champions as the award is going to be launched and uh, in subsequent years, what will you be looking for specifically in uh, dry star champions to come? So, Nilola, you can take that. Uh, maybe the director can also add to you on that. So, what, what are the criteria you're looking for? And what are things that you'll be looking for for future champions of uh, the Dry Side Award? Yeah, I think it's really um, what Dr. Ahmed, director, has said. You know, people who are have shown commitment, who have shown passion, who have shown dedication to the work. We know the work is not easy. Um, the work is difficult at times, you know, not just in terms of the danger faced, but the sacrifices that these, these people are making, being away from their families, having to potentially isolate themselves. And so the criteria will be looking at people who really have um, shown commitment to this. Um, people who have potentially been deployed to other countries um, by the Africa CDC to serve and to contribute their skills and expertise to fighting um, on the front lines of whatever public health emergency um, that country is facing. So definitely local um, African leaders who are the hard work of us safe. I think I'll hand over to director to provide additional details. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks, Niola. And James, uh, thank you for the question. Um, some of these details will work out and uh, publish the call, which will have details. We are looking for frontline health workers who excel in what they do. And um, um, we will give a lot more detail during the, the, the launch um, at, um, in Kigali. And um, uh, the full criteria is going to be made available. Uh, with the call that the call will make straight after the, uh, the conference so that we begin the process of uh, uh, selection because we know it is going to be uh, very heavily uh, subscribed. There are many of us in the front line and that there are many of us who are excelling and we really want to be sure that the criteria captures um, that very important piece of work. Um, but upfront, someone has to be African and working here in Africa. This is the base, and then everything else is going to come on top of that. But we want to see those who are excelling in their work as frontline uh, workers, uh, keeping us safe uh, here in Africa. 
Thank you. Thank you, Director. Uh, quite a good news, uh, interesting one for uh, colleagues who are in the health care service and uh, public health. Uh, I think it's time that you add more source to your work and see. let us see what the impact you're making. You're already making over the spine of your career as a public health or health professional in Africa. So we were just we are just eight minutes to the close of uh, our today's briefing. Uh, just to go back to our questions, colleague, just a last round of reminder for the methods to sending questions. Though we don't have much of a time, we can always save your question and bring them in subsequent uh, briefing. So you can use the question and answer section on the Zoom stream as well as the raise hand icon. And like most of our colleagues are doing today, you can come through on our WhatsApp number, plus 251-945. Welcome back. And uh, that was a briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, an affiliate of the African Union the uh, 55 uh, member state organization uh, on the African continent that is based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And that's going to conclude uh, this uh, episode of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, Today uh, is Saturday, uh, December 3rd, uh, 2022. And if you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and uh, that is at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. You can reach the Pan-African Radio Network by logging on to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, the programs are shareable. Uh, you can share them via email, uh, other blogs and websites, as well as social media networks. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with the music of uh, jazz uh, vibes player, and uh, his name is Bobby Hutchison, from the album entitled Acoustic Masters. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.